Welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller North by Northwest one minute of screen time per episode. I am Josh Newfeld of joshcomics.com. And I am ting-a-ling-a-ling, pom-pom-pom-ping, at deanhasfield.com. And together, we co-host Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. And today, we are here to talk about Minute 135 of North by Northwest, which starts with Roger and Eve taking a nice stroll through nature and ends with Eve doing her best 1960s Batman show impression of climbing up the side of a <laughs> edifice. Yeah, this is this feels like the truly the penultimate minute, even though we're two minutes away from the end. This one has everything. The, the pre-pen ultimate. The pencil ultimate. <laughs> yes. Before the pen. There you go. I don't know. Yeah. Pencils um, came first. Everything changes and comes to a head in this yeah. minute. Like everything swaps, you mm. know. It Explain. Starts, well, it starts with this classical theater staging. We see the menace of the villain before our heroes do. Mm-hmm. We're probably standing up in our seats and shouting seconds before even Marie Saint notices the danger of the henchman and screams herself. Right, because just to set it up, as they the movie starts off with them climbing along the right. side of the, underneath Washington, not knowing that the Valerian right. henchman has been kind of waiting there the whole time, and then they come around, and he is literally just frozen, crouched, Standing there waiting to jump on them above them, you right. know, and like they don't see him yet, right. but we For do. Like a really long amount of time, I know, and we're kind of like. <laughs> He's right there. You know, turn around, look. Just look up a little bit. So she screams, and in a split second, it's technically there, but if you blink, you won't see it happen. Cary Grant hands Eva Marie Saint the precious idol just as the henchman dives for it. Yes. um, Sending both men hurtling and tumbling towards certain death. But they land on a small cliff, perhaps a presidential collarbone. I don't know (laughs) what part of (laughs) president this is at that point a pocket handkerchief maybe <laughs> and they fight and as the henchman pulls out a knife in an effort to stab carrie grant in the face alas carrie grant gets the upper hand and sends the knife wielding. alas no we're happy alas wait are a, you feeling bad for oh Valeria? is alas supposed to make us feel yeah alas sad? is like oh no whoa well yeah i don't feel like you need to kill everybody oh okay even someone's trying to kill you Good for you. you I like that. Teach them a yeah. lesson. So you didn't need to try to kill me. Exactly. Now here's your second chance. <laughs> um, and a spoonful of jello. That's right. <laughs> Cary Grant gets the upper hand and sends the knife-wielding henchman to his ultimate demise. Yes, indeed. Meanwhile, Martin Landau has made it over to Eva Marie Saint and they struggle over the idol. He gets hold of the, whatever this Aztec type kind of sculpture is with the microfiche spy film and pushes Eva off the mountain he does it twice like he literally pushes her once and then we see yeah, him he kind gives of, her a little extra momentum a little <laughs> extra momentum <laughs> which is kind of messed up you think yeah and she falls as Cary grant climbs back up he looks over the side and sees eva clinging for her dear life Cary kind of scoots back down and reaches for her hand as her foot slips mm. you know the the famous like you know your, your foot is on like a piece of rock and it breaks off kind of thing. that rock always breaks it off always breaks yeah. off and i kind of want to talk about that a little bit in this podcast about this is like a trope i don't know if this is one of the first times we've ever done in cinema 
but it's clearly using all of the famous tropes that we know of now or has been used because of this, you know? The minute ends on the most heightened shot of the movie as Cary Grant reaches to save Eva Marie Saint. Yes. And it's it's the best minute of this, at least the seven minutes we're covering. I think this is the best minute. I agree that it's it's definitely the most like action-packed and exciting. And it's funny to me to compare it to the movie that we spent the last year breaking down, American mm-hmm. Splendor, which is a movie about a file clerk and like the question of whether he'll ever achieve notoriety and right. find love. And there isn't a single bad guy in that movie. Nope. There's no action. There's never a gun or a knife that is shown. That's right. So this movie could not be in more direct, you know, Opposite. opposition to that. Absolutely. And There's not a minute like this minute in, no. that, in that entire movie. <laughs> they would never even aspire to that's that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So just to circle around mm-hmm. again to some of the stuff uh, that you talked about again i think this is only the kind of stuff that you would notice if you're breaking a movie down minute by minute which we're doing but when valerian is crouching there ready to jump on them i could see that he was holding the knife already in his hand at that point so that's why he had it ready when they went tumbling down the hill so you're saying technically it's there Yeah. yeah and then when it is a very funny moment because clearly they blocked it out like hitchcock was like okay wait Eve, you have to end up with the statue, even mm-hmm. though Roger has been carrying it this whole time. So at that moment that Valerian jumps on him, Roger, you need to very quickly hand the sculpture over. So I love that idea that like this guy's about to be, you know, thrown off the cliff. And he's like, here, take this. You know? Yeah. And <laughs> at that moment. In in the shot in real time, it looks as if he tossed it up in the air. Yeah, it and looks she more like, it. A, like a, a fumble in football or That's something. Right. And That's the opposing right. team grabbed it. But there is, if you slow it down, you'll see he literally does pass it to her, mm-hmm. and then she gets, and then she raises it up as she turns to watch him, you know, being pushed right, off the cliff, which kind of furthers the sense that it flew up in the air right. and that she ended up with it. So the other thing that happens, like, so they tumble down. Valerian and our hero Roger tumble down the mountain, and you're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? But they kind of land on this cliff or this little ledge, collarbone. Right, like on the pocket handkerchief. Right. And they're uh, in this great battle. Again, this is like another movie trope is the fighting over the gun, fighting over the knife, fighting over this weapon. And I always think that the classic scene to me of that, and it came, you know, long after this movie, and it's it's quite heartbreaking, is the scene in Saving Private Ryan God. when the Adam Goldberg character yeah. is struggling with the Nazi in the building at the very end and over the knife and and it's a terrifying horrifying scene yeah and he even says he's like no 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 he tries to reason with the guy yeah it's so like brutal and intense Mm -hmm. and intimate and there is almost like it's funny because we keep coming back to the uh metaphor for sex which you talked about a couple of Mm -hmm. episodes ago where there's like all this foreplay and struggling and grunting and groaning and then last episode it was just silence, and now the only sound in this episode is like screams mm-hmm. of anguish, of passion, mm-hmm. you know. But this scene between Roger and Valerian is, you know, it's you can't get more intimate than that, fighting right. for your life, you know, hand to hand combat with a knife. Yep. And it actually is, uh, it leads to a very funny shot to me which is of Eve looking at them and she's screaming and then she actually sticks her hand in her mouth. Did you notice that? Oh, yeah. She like bites on her fist. That's right. And Like biting on a pillow. (laughs) 
<laughs> in bed. <laughs> right. Oh. So, yeah, but getting away from the sex talk for a second, I was um, reminded of a scene in The Godfather where, and I'm talking about this because I listened to The Godfather Minute with Alex Robinson and Andy Robinson, and they broke that scene down. There's a scene in it where Sonny Corleone is so upset about his uh, brother-in-law who's been beating up on his sister, Connie, and he wants to do something. He's so angry, so he sticks his fist in his mouth and, like, bites down on it, like, I'm going to teach that guy a lesson. And if you remember, like, cartoons from, like, the 1940s mm -hmm. and stuff, there was a lot of scenes of people, like, biting on their own fists right. and stuff. Right. So I actually looked it up. It's a, it's a, it's a, a shorthand. I mean, right. you know, but it does convey a lot of you know, a certain kind of frustration. Right. But you know? it feels like something people maybe did or never mm -hmm. did, but certainly isn't something that people do now. No. Like, oh, I'm right. gonna, you know. Right, right, right. So, I mean, unless you have like some kind of like disease where you're like addicted to eating your own flesh or something. Right, right. But I was actually looking it up a little bit and it turns out that there are certain gestures of like surprise or happiness or fear that are um, universal, like no matter what country or culture you come from in the world. And, and so this is very interesting, you know, for anthropologists to study this, that there are certain gestures that are universal. And one of them is when you see something horrible, you put your hand to your head often or you cover your eyes or cover your mouth. And the theory is, and this is true whether you're in America or in Africa or Asia or South America, whatever culture you come from. And the theory is that, that the putting something in your mouth is like a pacifying gesture. Because yes. as kids, we would make ourselves feel more comfortable by you know, sucking our thumb. Well, or they say the like first that. thing that you know what to do as a baby, the very first behavior is you learn how to suck. Right. Well, that's a, a survival tactic. Yeah. 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 But it's a pacifying gesture, too. And, you know, a lot of kids suck their thumbs and this is a way of calming yourself down. And so there's this thought that maybe and also if you cover your eyes with your hands, you know, you're, you're preventing yourself from seeing something that you don't want to see mm -hmm. or you're making yourself smaller or protecting yourself mm -hmm. by putting your arms around yourself. So all of those things have maybe been put into the shorthand of visual mm -hmm. storytelling. So and as cartoonists, we mm -hmm. use that all the time, stuff like that. Yep. I draw people chewing on their own fist all the time. Every I other... make a point in every comic I do, no matter what the topic. Right. <laughs> That'll be in there. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so then he... I just imagine you doing stand-up right now. And, it's... and then you tell a joke, and then you turn around the audience, and everyone has their fist in their mouth. There you go. That's the reaction you want. And they're making themselves smaller because they're afraid. <laughs> Sucking their thumbs, That's calling right. for mommy. That's right. But then Valerian falls to his death, and it's sort of a classic. So you're saying, I mean, like, you make a really good point. These are all classic it. movie moments. Yes. So this is one of those movie moments we've seen a jillion times if we're into action movies at all. Is somebody, a bad guy, usually falling off of a very high height and falling to their death. Or even a, a short height, because I think you started to, you were interested in... in um contrasting this scene of a person falling with vertigo right yeah so and then i when i saw the vertigo and thought about this scene i then thought about the guy who fell down the stairs in psycho mm -hmm. which is a very peculiar way of showing someone falling down the stairs yeah talk about that well you know obviously it's kind of a faked scenario because they didn't have a stuntman fall and i don't know if it's a case of where you shoot someone falling in like midair or something and then the the camera just kind of does a thing where it pulls away and makes you smaller or something like that i don't know the technical way of how they create that effect but you could probably talk more about vertigo but in psycho 
there's this moment where he's walking up the stairs, the private investigator or so whoever's coming I think in. His name is Arbogast. Is that what it is? Okay. And he goes up and you see like basically what happens is that the psychotic character in the movie, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to spill the beans, but comes out and like stabs uh, this guy at the top of the stairs a couple times like in his head and cuts his head. And then he's supposed to fall backwards to his death, right? Mm-hmm. A flight of stairs. But the way it's shot is so bizarre because yeah. it looks like he could be falling from like, you know, the top of a building, mm-hmm. you know? And then he just kind of like tiptoes backwards yes. to his death. It's amazing like agility that he displays because he tiptoes backwards down an entire flight of stairs right. and then and he, collapses at the bottom. Do you ever notice that sometimes in a Spike Lee movie when two people are talking, they look like they're floating sometimes? He does hmm. this kind of thing where the two people are standing next to each other, but they're clearly not walking. There's nothing about their body gesture that says that they're walking, but they are moving forward, but they're floating. Mm, yeah, and that's okay. something he's that done technique. many times yes, in his movies. Yes. I feel like Alfred Hitchcock kind of used this same idea of people falling, mm-hmm. you know, the same way. Yeah, because you know? in the Vertigo, the scene in Vertigo, and I think it happens a number of times, and these movies were all made right around each other, which right. is amazing, because Vertigo came out in 1958, uh, North by Northwest, 1959, Psycho, 1960, right. and they're like three totally different movies, all by the same director. Yep. It's fascinating. But, you know, obviously he has a certain style that yeah. you can start to, you know, figure out what the trends are, but that was one of them, the way people fell. Mm-hmm. And so the vertigo falling scene is a very similar kind of shot where it's like from above and the character's kind of spinning around as they're, you know, getting smaller and smaller. And you always kind of wonder, like, how they shoot those kind of scenes. Like, obviously, it's a composite and maybe it's a stuntman or they make the camera fly up away from someone who's lying there and pretending to be scrambling and falling or whatever, you know, on a flat A lot of different methods. It makes me think of, I think, a pretty infamous behind the scenes moment from the movie Die Hard where the Alan Rickman character, Hans Gruber, he falls off the big tower at the very end of the movie. And the filmmakers decided in agreement with Alan Rickman that they would actually have him fall off of something and shoot him falling. Um, And he he landed like on a big pillow, you know. And it was a big deal because he had never filmed a scene like that. It does take, you know, some amount of agility to be able to land right, even though you're landing on a big soft thing. And he was a little nervous about doing it. And they were, everyone was a little nervous. Like, I'm sure they had to get like good insurance and stuff. But the filmmakers decided to rig it so that they told him, okay, you know, at the count of three, you're going to fall and we'll shoot that. But they rigged the thing he was holding on to so that at the count of two, it actually gave way and he started falling. And the expression on his face as he starts to fall is so pure yeah. fear and terror. <laughs> they captured that completely and kept that on screen. You're reminding me of a tactic they used in a, I feel like it was the Little Rascals or one of those kinds of shows or movies where... They needed the young boy to cry, and he just wasn't crying. He couldn't do it, right? Mm. And he just couldn't do it. So he had been friendly with this dog on set, and they said, if you don't cry, we're going to shoot this dog. (laughs) And he just couldn't do it, and they just took the dog behind the shed, and you heard a gunshot. Oh, no. And the kid started bursting. And then he said, okay, and action. And, you know, they filmed him, and he was crying, and they made him say his lines. And then they brought the dog out. Uh Uh-huh. And tell me that... That kid is in a, in a told, lot of therapy. There's a mental hospital right now. <laughs> that is child abuse. Yes, That's, it is. Absolutely. Hardcore. That's why they have now, they have those, you know, the labels at the end of movies, like no children or animals were harmed right. in the making of this movie. Right, right. Well, maybe not physically harmed. <laughs> right. But yeah, this minute, like, literally has uh, so many famous actions 
happening within one minute. Mm-hmm. And again, all the roles kind of get reversed in a way, you know. And it comes true. The true menacing danger starts to actively happen, you know, by the end of the scene. But it did make me think about famous reaching for the hand scenes in cinema, you know, mm. like, which there's so many of. And one thing I thought it was Blade Runner at the end when he's hanging off the side of that building and Rucker Hauer. Yeah. I think we mentioned I think this. the second time we've talked yeah. about that. Yeah. And then I think he starts to step on his hand and starts to crush his fingers. But then he decides to let him live. And literally, because he's so strong. Yeah, because he's a He can cyborg. lift him up just like with one, his one arm and lifts, mm-hmm. lifts him up onto the side. Yeah, and saves his life so he can tell this shot. little story because he's dying. Mm-hmm. You know, Another one I thought of is Empire Strikes Back. Uh, here, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, Luke Skywalker discovers that his father is Darth Vader. And at the end there, does he reach out for his hand or does something where, does his father cut off his hand? Yeah, Darth cuts Darth? off Luke's hand. Right. Because Luke is, no, it's impossible. It's impossible. And, but yeah. doesn't, and but they start fighting and again. But there's like the an emotional, it's like he's emotionally reaching out and right. gets his hand cut off. Right. You know? And then he goes offers tumbling. to help him, and Luke refuses and basically Try, commits, commits suicide. suicide. It's, that's what we think. Yeah, but he does survive. He does survive by luck. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he thought that was going to happen. I yeah, think I've he never just... been quite clear, and that's what makes that movie work for me, is that we don't really know what his choice was at that moment, but he does survive. Right. But he'd rather die or take his chances than join with his father. The dark side. Which is right. great. So, I mean, again... Those are just two quick examples of popular movies, but I feel like there must be thousands yeah, of movies exactly. where that's happening. And in this scene, they really like draw it out. Like there's, you know, we look down, as you were saying, in your rundown after Leonard very cruelly pushes her down and then gives her another push just mm-hmm. to really make sure. So we see Roger sort of scramble up and look down and we see her hanging desperately off this mm-hmm. ledge mm-hmm. by her fingertips. Mm-hmm. And then there's this very extended sequence of him reaching down and her like not quite reaching his hand and it's like this delayed gratification getting back to our metaphor from earlier well and it's building up to that i think yes as, you know as the movie crawls along but i thought that i don't know if it was a stunt man or if that was Cary grant you know in that last portion of the minute but it's so incredible the body language because he really is stretching about as far as he can mm-hmm. with his legs, his arms, everything about it. Wearing penny loafers, by the way. And with, and, and the <laughs> pants, I think we noticed this in the last minute, that's didn't right. say it, but the pants are still torn. Yeah, so that's continuity. continuity. I love it. But yeah, he's giving it all he's got to the point where you're like, even if he gets her hand and grabs it, how? Is he going to pull her up? Right, because he barely is holding on to anything stable himself. But you did demonstrate, I think, last episode that he has incredible leg strength. His leg strength is... He's able to climb without using his hands at all. That's right. So maybe he's like dug his talons into the side of the mountain (laughs) or something. (laughs) Was there any more observations you had about the scene? Uh, Not the scene, the minute. Yeah, I guess the Leonard character, this is sort of like his last hurrah as a character in the film. So we see him, you know... The pincer movement that Valerian and Leonard instigated way back at minute 131, where they went in two different directions Mm -hmm. and then came at our heroes from both sides, has finally worked here because right as uh, Valerian has jumped on the scene, Leonard has caught up to them. So he's able to grab the statue from Eve and he's struggling with her. And then there's this funny moment where as Roger is reaching for Eve, there's a shot of Leonard kind of 
looking down at them in this very interested way. Like mm-hmm. he's just kind of an observer now. He's kind of, oh, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Is he going to get her? Is she going to... He doesn't seem to care that much one way or the other, but he's definitely paying attention. Right. So they don't have guns. So I guess you would stand there for a minute to make sure. Are they falling? Are they going to, you know... Or maybe he feels, well, I have the item, the idol. Right. You know, again, maybe they don't have to die or... I don't know. Yeah, that's why I think he... Like, that's, I think, the ability of Martin Landau's performance to sort of leave us a little unclear. Like maybe he's not as bad as we thought. Maybe it, since now, like you said, he's won, he's going to do what he can to see if maybe he can still like, uh, you know, keep them prisoner without mm-hmm. killing them. I, it's, it's up in the air. Mm-hmm, so we'll have mm-hmm. to wait until next episode to find out. Right. But there is something, I think that it was a deliberate directing choice by Hitchcock to say, look ambiguous at this sure, moment sure. or ambivalent right other than that yeah i just and again getting back to the sex metaphor i was thinking you know in these last two episodes that and as we've talked about earlier like the eve character has slowly had to remove items of clothing yes. right so first she had the shawl that got caught in the bushes she ditched that then she lost her handbag when they went down the cliff the first time i think and then her shoes broke off so at this point she's now and she had a jacket right she had a jacket too so at this point she's walking around in her bare feet or her pantyhose or something and roger's just got his billowing white shirt and there's something very like human and vulnerable about the fact that they are undressed to a certain Mm -hmm. degree Mm -hmm. but it also feeds into this little theory we're putting together that Mm -hmm. all of this is foreplay but you know i'm sure that that's not gonna pay off in any way we'll have to see (laughs) i guess we'll have to (laughs) and there's something also about a billowing white shirt the way you just said that that just triggered the thought of shakespeare in my head i don't know why i'm not saying this is a shakespearean scene or a shakespearean kind of movie you know he is the originator of, of sort of the modern drama, right? Of, you know, yes. like a lot of the dramatic tropes still right. that we use in filmmaking and storytelling were kind of popularized and, and really made effective by Shakespeare. So right. yep. it's not a bad comparison. Well, is there anything else or do you feel like we uh, well, are ready that, to move on? To again, the- out of the seven minutes we're covering here, I think this is the kind of like the best of, of the seven yeah, because of what it, it's populated with. And what has been made popular from it. And again, it just reminds you of so many other movies or or movies that were to come, you know, because of it. You know, again, I don't know totally. how many movies did this previously in this arrangement and the amount of tropes that are performed in this minute. Mm-hmm. But it was very heightened. And I like how... You know, you don't know when you're watching the movie, there's only two minutes left after this scene. I know, it's crazy to think that. Yeah. So it's kind of amazing. And I do like... How movies and I, I've been watching a lot of Alfred Hitchcock presents recently, mm-hmm. and these are like these half-hour dramas, you know, or less. Now he would introduce and like intro, outro, outro them, but he didn't actually direct, or was I don't think involved. so. I think he directed maybe three or four episodes maybe. out of like a hundred that they made. Sure, yeah, but you know, and a lot of these stories were derived from his uh, Alfred Hitchcock magazine, you know, his mystery magazine. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that where the stories? A lot of from? them. Oh, interesting. And then, okay. and then, what was really interesting is that a lot of the writers that wrote the prose were then also the writers of the teleplay. And, you know, as you know, like not everybody that can write prose can write, a, you know, a TV script. So maybe it was kind of like the first time for a lot of, of those types of writers. But what's interesting about those shows, and I've been watching them, is they always end right when they need to. Mm. Like they get you to where the and there's nothing more. It's very lean. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this movie does that 
as well. And you mentioning Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I don't know if, I think maybe I saw like reruns of those when I was a kid in the 70s once yep. in a while. And I remember that they were definitely like exactly the right amount of suspense and fear for my fragile kid. You know, sure, like they sure. were titillatingly violent, but never right. like actually scary. Well, ju- that's what he does. Just gives you just enough because, you know, the famous shower scene in Psycho. Mm-hmm. Technically, the knife never touches the body. Right. You know, stuff like that. you kind of see it before and after. Yeah, all the the suggestions are there and the blood and, you know. And I think great horror and thriller films could still be made that way. Absolutely. And what's funny about Alfred Hitchcock Presents at his outro at the end of the episode. Yes. The naughty little man. He always made sure to say how if there was something ambiguous, like did the person get away with the crime? Mm -hmm. He always followed up by saying how they went to jail. Like, of course, they got busted. That was probably like they were required to do that. Absolutely. That's what it felt like. So the other Hitchcock related thing from when I was a kid that I remember is at some point, and I know other hosts have talked about this as well, but at some point I acquired this record called uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Ghost Stories for Young People. Hmm. And it was a, you know, 33 and a third RPM double-sided vinyl record that had Alfred Hitchcock introducing a bunch of like ghost and scary stories. So I think there was like three on each side. And I bet you that they were taken from the Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine, but they were narrated by this guy. Um, each story was told, you know, by this actor. His name was John Allen. But Hitchcock would introduce each one, like sort of a little, you know, teaser mm-hmm. between each one also. And the premise of the whole thing was that Hitchcock had. Uh, he would say, how do you do, boys and girls? I'm delighted to find that you believe in ghosts, too. After all, they believe in you, so it is only common courtesy to return the favor. And he would introduce all of the stories, all the while recounting this droll story of his own failed attempts to deal with a leaky faucet. And you'd hear the sound effects of the water dripping and everything. And then, like, each episode, the water would be getting deeper and deeper, and he'd be having more trouble getting it fixed. And by the very end, uh, right before... The records ended on side two. He's like basically drowned. He's like, bloop, bloop, call the call the plumber. But I don't believe I've fixed this faucet. Bloop, 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 bloop. I totally remember that. <laughs> oh, it's coming back to you it's now. Right too. now, I completely forgot about it, and I totally heard that. And I remember the dripping of the water became a terrifying sound, right? You know, because of what happened, exactly. Even though he's being cheeky and funny, because right. that's the thing about Hitchcock is he was actually very funny. I think we mentioned that. Yes, he's a lot funnier than I think he gets credit for. Mm-hmm. And he, because he comes off so cheeky. And then it made me think about, is he and like Rod Serling the only people who like introed and outro those anthologies? Did anybody else ever do that back then? Well, I know in like a lot of radio dramas and stuff, they would have like a host, you know, like a horror host who would sort of like play this role as like a, a crypt keeper or a gatekeeper, mm. like the way that the EC comics did and Tales from the Crypt and things like that. Right. That was a very common thing. And I know a lot of TV shows where they would show like old movies, they would have like a host who would come on and sort of like, you know, give a little preview of it and they would be sort of a creepy character themselves. So I think that was kind of a trope in like the right. 50s, 40s era. Right. But Hitchcock definitely and, and Rod Serling probably were the best at mm-hmm. what they did. And and they also like having them say something also sanctioned the story. Like they believed in it enough. Yeah. You know, exactly. <laughs> that and a paycheck, but they really didn't enough <laughs> to air it. Yeah, but both of them were much more than just, you know, mouthpieces. I mean, they were Absolutely. very creative characters in their own rights. Absolutely. 
I mean, Rod Serling was not only the host of he wrote a lot Twilight Zone, but he was like the creative yes. mind behind a lot of it. All right. Well, good talking about this minute. If you're interested in this kind of discussion from Dean and myself, then you should check out our other podcast, Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, where we talk about the film American Splendor, the great Harvey Picar slash Paul Giamatti movie. And we talk about comics. We talk about our own uh, careers as alternative cartoonists. And we break the movie down into 30, about five-minute chunks and there are lots of guests and other uh, stars who were in the film, the producers, the writers, other cartoonists, musicians. It's a good time. And you can find that at scenebyscenepodcast.com or Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean on Facebook. And Dean, did you know that there are over 100 other Movies by Minutes podcasts available at moviesbyminutes.com? If you like what you've been hearing on the Hitchcock Minute, you should check out that site for other great shows like our show, Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. And remember, you can find the Hitchcock Minute podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Google Play or at the main site, hitchcockminute.com. And on social media... It is available at The Man on Washington's Nose on Facebook and on Twitter at Hitchcock Minute. So join us here tomorrow for Minute 136 of The Hitchcock Minute. Goodbye, Mr. Thornhill, wherever you are. Ooh la la. If you like what you've been hearing on the witch on the Hitchcock on the Witchcock, if <laughs> <laughs>